are, Mr. Dan. Welcome back, dear listeners, to The Weird. Well, hello, uh, Riley. Hello, good listener. I hope wherever you're listening, you are safe and comfortable. Perhaps you're curled up on your couch with a warm cup of cocoa, a nice uh, pair of slippers on your feet, and a, and a bag of, of um, Ringo's, Ringolos. I thought you were going to say like a bag of heroin. And a bag of heroin. Just melt that bag down and insert it into your... Oh, I don't even... Oh, God, don't, don't go... <laughs> Jesus. I have to say, though, listeners uh, out there, it could not be a more perfect winter evening. I was just saying that to my family right before we recorded, Riley. It reminded me of a perf- almost a picture-perfect Christmas Eve. There is a, a snowstorm outside of cinematic proportions that is just... Gorgeous. Right out of um, It's a Wonderful Life. And I was saying in the last couple of episodes, ah, we've got no winter here and it's been mild. Now we have winter. I mean, it's such, the, the snow was such that I even said to my son, hey, let's go down to the local bridge and I'll throw myself off and you could pretend to be the angel and rescue me from the water. And then we'll go to the shack next to the bridge. And then I'll tell you, I don't, I wish I was never born. And then we'll go through Ottawa, but it won't be Ottawa. It'll be Pottawa. And it'll be a terrible town run by uh, cannabis uh, czars. And everything will be bad. And then I'll realize at the end, uh, when I see my spinster uh, wife, who never was, that I I made a mistake and I want to go back. And then I'll come in, we'll come back into the house and everyone will be there <laughs> watching your face. I wish I, I wish I, I wish I brought a duvet because that's just going on and on. I was watching your face as I did the level of. Oh, can I say something? Well, you know, I got to say something first. You know, when you're at a improv show, you know, because you're in the improv community, and you're watching a skit, and you're thinking, oh, I, I know what they're after here, but I just, I, I hope they wrap it up soon and move on to the next. That was how I was feeling listening to that story. A lot of my castmates sometimes feel I can ramble. I love talking. I know you do. I really do. What were you going to ask me? Well, I don't remember. And but I was going to say there was something in the episode about the um, the missing hikers. De Szechuan is that how you pronounce the De Szechuan missing hiker? Yeah, missing there was hiker. Something I said in that episode that wasn't factual. What did you say? I insisted on that it was, and it's bothering me now. And because I looked it up uh, afterwards, and I can't remember now, so it's completely useless. Edit this out. Was it? Was it? Wait, 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 wait. I bet I know what it was. Was it about genetics? Yes, DNA testing. Yes, because I remember you were quite insistent that there's no way they could have. DNA done testing any- was in use, but not widely uh, in the mid 1980s. So I, I will never doubt you again. No, doubt me, please. My God, there's only so much my head can hold, and on the science, mathy stuff, I'm not. I'm not that good on. Well, neither am I. I have a great story for this week. So do you want me to just start? Go right ahead. It's going to be compact, but it is such a good story. And I'm counting on you to fill in some of the moments in it that I might not know a lot about. Is it about uh, Winterlude in Ottawa, the great snow festival? I know a lot about that. I hate Winterlude. I hate it. Every time I go, I freeze to death. Well, and probably because it's in the winter. 
Well, but it's always that one day that we decide to go where it's minus 40 and it's just unbearable. And everybody's huddled around that one fire they have. We need to explain to people what winter, they have no idea what we're talking about. I'm sure, I'm sure that when we say winterlude, they're picturing exactly, it's an outdoor festival. Well, it's, they it's, have. it's more than that. Some people internationally may know about Ottawa because we have the longest outdoor frozen skating rink on the, in the world. Uh, and that's the the Ottawa Canal, and the canal is is a um, was made in the 1820s, and it it basically splits the old city of Ottawa between uh, east and west. Mm-hmm. And this thing travels from the very tip, the northern tip of the city, uh, from the Ottawa River, and cuts all the way down. You can skate that whole thing. And then in February, we have this three week festival called Winterlude. That uh, there's all these activities on the canal itself. Including that lone fire on the <laughs> on the canal. We also have the international ice sculpting, uh, which is one of my favorite things to go see. That's what I'm talking about going to see. You should clarify that winterlude only ever happens successfully about fifty percent of the time. Well, since climate change, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, yeah, it's it's it happens. It's just sometimes it's shortened because of the weather. But and then the, my favorite thing though is Jacques Cartier Park, where they they have these giant snow slides while they're and they become like they ice them and everything. They're super quick and fast with all these other crazy fun activities that you can do. That's my kids' favorite. I loved that as a, as a child. So that's what we're referring to when we talk about Winterlude. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's Ottawa's winter event. Yeah, big tourist thing. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's not my thing because I'm not a winter person and I don't skate. But uh, I get it. But I I honestly don't really care. <laughs> I'm not a good and I've worked for Winterlude as an actor many 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 times. Yeah, so have I. Okay, I want to tell you a story. We're going to uh, Germany, Germany, which is in Europe. Yes, and I'm going to tell you uh, this evening the story of the Sella Nues Rathaus. What is that? Okay, I'm going to tell you about it. It is a very large brownish colored building. And that term that I just coined, well, I didn't coin it, it exists. But the term I just said in German translates into the new town hall of Sella. So Nues Rathaus means the new town hall. Okay. So we're in the city of Sellet. The construction of this particular building began in 1869, and it was completed in 1872. And just to give you a geographic perspective, it's in the lower Saxony region of Germany. It was built originally to house the 2nd Hanover Infantry Regiment. So it was built to be a military structure. That's what its intention was the building contained 300 rooms and it could accommodate 1200 soldiers and 200 officers wow. the interesting thing about the building was there are five upper floors that's not super interesting but there are five lower floors and considering that this was built in 1869 to have five subterranean levels is quite remarkable and quite an engineering feat mm-hmm. five levels is a lot. And, and sorry, what year did they start construction? Like 1869. And they were finished in 1872. In 1919, the German, I don't know if I can say this word properly at all, Reichswehr, translates to real defense. So German Reichswehr, it's Reich with an S-C-H-W-E-R on it, Reichswehr. Let's just say that. 
It translates, that term translates to the real defense was headquartered in the building. The early period of the building's occupation was completely uneventful. But things began to heat up after dear old Adolf Hitler came into power. And during World War II, the building became a military headquarters for the infamous SS. Oh. Yeah. They were housed there and it was super secret what was going on there. It's important to note here before I go any further in the story that Sella is very, very close to the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Okay, yeah. And trains transporting people to the concentration camp would often have to pass through Sella and then uh, uh, turn onto another rail system to get to that concentration camp. Interesting fact, on April the 8th, 1945, about 3,500 prisoners en route to that concentration camp were killed when an Allied air raid hit an ammunition train that was parked right next to the passenger train Mm -hmm. that were transporting people to the camp. 3,500 people were killed in that explosion. Mm -hmm. The few that weren't killed and managed to escape ran into the woods and they were hunted ruthlessly, of course, Mm -hmm. by the SS. So that was a terrible event. 3,500 people dying all at once. Man, that's got to leave a blister, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. The war with Germany is finally coming to a close. And this is something, Dan, you know a lot about. Well, just because you're a a war buff. The British and American forces are making that final successful push through Germany. And they eventually came to the town of Sella, which was at that time a small community, it still is actually, of about 40,000 inhabitants. And the town, all of the town, surrendered on April the 12th, 1945. There was no resistance made whatsoever. I, um, I was reading about this, and apparently as the Allied troops came through, all of the towns just surrendered. Nobody put up a fight. They had no one to fight with. I mean, they were fighting with their elderly and their children at that point in the war. Well, apparently, too, they said that they had been exhausted and completely ravaged by the war. I think Saxony is is also like like Dresden is, is in that area. Okay. Where there, there was a very famous... It was firebombed. Like they, they dropped incendiary bombs and utterly destroyed the whole city and killed I, I'm uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of civilians. These were utterly demoralized people by that point in the war. There was no fight left in them. And that's something that the literature that I read about this kept reinforcing, that, that they were just done. They were done. Yeah. So the uh, the rat house at that time had gained the uh, it's, it's just funny saying rat house because it sounds like a rat house full of rats, mm-hmm. but it was actually quite clean. Uh, it was known to be one of the largest freestanding brick buildings in Europe. When the Allied troops came upon the rat house, it had been deserted. The SS had pulled up stakes and they were out of there. And uh, surprisingly, because it was such a large building, it had not been damaged by any of the air raids. Interesting. Yeah, because a big building, if you see a picture of it, it's very, very large. Yeah, it came through the war unscathed. How, and how do you spell the the name of the town again? C-E-L-L-E. You're looking it up? Yeah. Why? Because I want to look. Leave me alone. What are you looking on? Like Google Maps? No, I'm looking at images. Okay. Well, the building is famous and it's still there. Okay. Okay. So I want you to listen to this because it's important. This is the part that hooked me on the story. So when the Allied forces enter the building, 
they discover that the Nazis have flooded the entire lower levels and sealed all the entrances to the lower levels with concrete. Oh. Right? And so they're like, what the fuck is going on? Why did they do that? Right. To seal five levels, too, took a lot of work. Yeah. So immediately they're thinking, okay, Nazi treasure that they've stolen during the war, because it was not uncommon to come across military installations and find stolen goods there that they had pillaged during the war. So their thought is, oh, wow, they've sealed this up. Once we pass through and this is all behind us, they're going to come back, open it up and retrieve all the stolen property that they've acquired during the war. So just for you to get a little bit of perspective, the mass like cubic square feet of the flooded area is the equivalent of a normal football stadium. Oh, this is huge. This is a huge building. That's how much cubic footage has been flooded with water. Because remember I said it's five underground floors. And sorry, the footprint of this thing is like a football field. Yeah. It's Ooh, huge. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. They decide that they're going to have to investigate. And the officer in charge at that time is a Lieutenant General Brian Horrocks. He's from uh, the United States. He's the commander of the 84th Infantry. And he ordered some of the concrete barriers to be removed. He then contacted the military, who responded by sending three very experienced U.S. Navy divers to investigate the flooded lower levels. Now, at that time, it's 1945, these dives are occurring with dive suits. Yeah. Which involves what they call an umbilical. Yeah. Which provides you with your oxygen. Also a line, elect- electricity line uh, that also is be used for communications and a tether. So it's a cumbersome dive. It's not like a scuba dive where you have your gear on your back and you have a little bit of freedom. It's not that. They're, they're bundled up quite heavily. Mm-hmm. But these guys are very experienced. It's, two, it's three of the uh, Navy's most experienced divers who've been doing dives all through the World War II uh, effort. So the dive was finally organized, and it occurred on April the 15th, 1945. Okay. Three divers, like I said, were dispatched from three different locations. And that's smart, good military mind operating there because he's like, we can cover more ground if they're moving in, you know, if they're not together. Mm -hmm. So they go down. Now, Dan, I want you to just picture in your mind what they're going down into. What are you looking at? I'm looking at pictures of it. The building? Yes. It's huge, eh? I didn't, I wasn't picturing it. When you said the football field, I had to look. It's huge. It's very wide. Yeah. And it's still there. So they're, they're descending through um, opened up concrete openings into pitch blackness because this is the basement. There are no windows and there's no natural light coming through. So these divers, all they have is their sources of illumination, which are attached to their suits. And that's it. It's pitch fucking black down there. And I've seen the footprint of those lower corridors, the blueprints. It's a maze. So not only are they descending into pitch blackness, it's like a maze of corridors and rooms. And they don't probably have the blueprints. So they don't know they don't know what they're walking into at all. That's hard. And the pitch black, geez, Louise. I know. I I just the whole idea of diving, period, but diving into pitch black with a big cumbersome suit. Okay. Thirty minutes pass. And finally, one diver resurfaces. The two other divers are never seen again. What? They pull the cords back 
and they are able to retrieve the tether cords and the umbilical, but there is nothing on the other end. Those divers disappeared, and to this day, their bodies were never recovered. What? I'm telling you the truth. The diver that does make it back is terrified. He cannot leave the water fast enough. He's got a little bit of the bends, you know, when you surface too quickly. They bring him up. They put him on a stretcher. They try to calm him down. He is raving like a lunatic. He is thrashing. He is violent. Once he finally calms down, they are able to conduct a preliminary interview. Now, again, we have to stress here, he's a very experienced diver. He's one of the best in the world. He's a military trained diver. This is the sole survivor's account of what he saw in the lower chambers of that building. He stated, many of the rooms resembled and were laid out as hospital wards with beds arranged in rows and also many operating rooms and operating theaters. So operating theaters with the observation gallery and then operating rooms. He said the operating rooms contained tables with a lot of restraints and belts and devices on them. On the first and second floors, these were the first two that he encountered, he saw many symbols etched into the walls. Many of the symbols he identified as pentagrams. Mm -hmm. Many of the others were symbols that he had never seen before, but he believed they were occult tracings. When he finally made it down to the third floor, he came upon bodies strapped to chairs. The bodies had been horribly mutilated. He described seeing vivisected navels, missing limbs, missing heads, and many of the bodies had animal appendages attached where human limbs should be. He also, also on a number of the bodies, saw goat's heads sewn on where the human heads should have been. When he went closer to inspect the bodies, he claims that they were still moving, struggling, to free themselves. Okay. So when you see the first pentagram, I'm already like, okay, I'm out of here. Yeah. But when you start to see mutilated corpses in the pitch black, I'm not sticking around like good on him, I guess for, for, so that's when he hoofed it out of there was when, see what I just did there. Hoofed it out of there. Yeah. So when he saw that he, that's when he went to the surface. No. Oh, he surfaced when he saw a black form come from around a corner in pursuit of him. When he saw the black form, he turned around, grabbed his tether line and followed it to the surface as fast as he could. (sighs) I know it's the idea of those bodies in the chairs, right? Pickled in that water. And they don't know how long it had been flooded, I guess. No, they have no idea. They don't know when the SS up and up and fled. The cement had been set. So I get it long enough for that to have occurred. The diver, in question, and I couldn't find his name, never fully recovered from the experience. And about three months after this uh, event, he was discharged from the Navy. And he had been with the Navy for quite a while. He just couldn't handle it. Horrocks, the guy in charge that I mentioned earlier, decided it was wise not to investigate this matter any further. He felt that it was too dangerous because he had already lost two very capable men. And he knew that the facility was going to soon be turned over to the British Army. So he let things lie as they were. On April 21st, 1945, the building was indeed handed over to the British Army, which resealed the lower levels that had been opened with concrete once again. So the question on everyone's mind was, why did the Nazis go to such lengths to hide what was in 
those lower levels. Were they hiding? Maybe they weren't hiding. Maybe they were sealing. Sealing it up, yeah. Like to keep themselves safe. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? Ah! Okay, let's move on. Following all the rise and fall and tumult of World War II, the building eventually came to house a sizable component of NATO troops during the Cold War. So it was once again used as a war facility. And it was during this period that reports of paranormal phenomena began to appear. The first and most well-known of these was by a gentleman named Stephen Daly. He was a British infantryman, and he claimed that on his first night in the barracks, he saw the silhouette of a complete military formation marching outside his window. When he opened the drapes, the draperies of the blind to look outside, he saw that the, the formation was transparent. He could see through them. And also, it's important to note that the window he was looking out of was on the second floor, seven feet above the ground. Hmm. Other soldiers reported seeing that exact same manifestation. Others reported hearing the sound of marching jackboots in empty halls and on the parade grounds, especially at night. They also reported hearing whispered voices speaking in German in vacant or even locked rooms. A private named Martin Fox woke up one night to discover that his bed was floating eight feet from the ground. Now, he was in a dorm and there were other people there. As soon as he woke up and figured out what had happened, he screamed and the bed immediately fell to the ground, waking up all the soldiers around him. At first, he thought it was a prank, but in closer examination, there was no mechanism attached to the bed whatsoever. So there was no reason for that, no um, logical reason why the bed would have been. No one, the the guys weren't lifting it up or whatever on the four corners. No, they were apparently sound asleep. Another sergeant uh, doing his rounds claimed to have seen a phantom German panzer column move past him on the road. Same MO, transparent and completely silent. Like tanks, they're big tanks going by. Yeah. And the men stationed there would oftentimes find their rooms mysteriously vandalized. Drawers would be pulled out, tables would be turned over, their beds would be destroyed. Men also reported seeing dark figures standing at the end of their beds in the middle of the night and in the shadowy ends of hallways. Also, in the upper floors of the rat house, which was not being used, pentagrams and strange symbols were found inscribed in the floors and walls and underneath floor coverings. And it was a soldier's thing. Uh, it got to be a thing where they would dare each other to spend the night up there. And a lot of the soldiers who had spent the night or tried to spend the night on those upper floors later committed suicide. Okay, so the second floor is okay. Where does it get? Where on what floor? The fourth and fifth. Just I the think. fourth and fifth. Okay. Yeah, because they didn't. NATO wasn't using the whole facility. Because huge, right? They don't need that much room. So that particular installation had a recorded, notable, documented spike in medical discharges and suicides way beyond the norm for a military installation. A medical examiner actually stated in an official report that there seemed to be a dark, oppressive atmosphere hanging over the site. Almost anyone who who was stationed at that house had a ghost story or some kind of paranormal encounter tale to share. Nobody left that facility without something happening to them. There are way, way too many accounts to discount the reality that something was going on in that building. 
if it's an SS building, then you can only imagine the horrors that occurred in there. I would imagine it would be a bit like going to one of the death camps, which you and I both have said we, wait, sorry, you did go to one. No, I want to. You do want to. I think it's important for some reason. Yeah. To, to bear witness, right? Yeah. I think it's important. Um, I imagine the feeling you would experience in a death camp would be similar if, if this was an SS. And for those people who don't know, the SS were the... Um, Dan, I was going to ask you that. You're about to do it. Can you please explain a little bit about the SS? What was their purpose? All of it. So they were like the um, the fanatical element of the German war machine. So they weren't secret police. That was the Gestapo. They were the um, sort of like, there weren't special forces, although they, they were in, in some ways, um, but they were like the diehard Nazis. So the German army was broken up into two pieces, basically. And I'm sure there'll be uh, people who know more about this that will then yell at me. But you had the Wehrmacht, who were your regular issue soldiers. And some of them could be Nazis, but not necessarily, right? A lot of people that fought in the Wehrmacht were people that had to fight because your you and your family would be at you know well your life would be at risk if you didn't. The SS though were the 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 fervent believers and often fought fanatically as well. Are they kind of like the German Taliban a bit? Yeah, sure. That's a that's a great way to like there. Yeah, there's because there was almost a religious aspect to Nazism, right? And right. Hitler himself even dabbled with the occult. Um, there's sometimes people think that the Nazis were in line sort of with Christianity. And they weren't. In fact, they were looking more in their their deep past, uh, their Nordic roots or their Aryan roots. Uh, there was a lot of you know even going back to the ancient like Roman times and the Germanic tribes and and the 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 uh, ritual and religion that was was very popular then. The symbolism. The funny thing, by the way, with the Nazi symbol is that 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 the swastika. They actually uh, they stole that from Hinduism. That I knew. Yeah, and it's actually not a, uh, it's not an evil symbol. In it, mm-hmm. it some, it's a very peaceful symbol. Um, so the SS were, the, they were the ones who would run the death camps. Uh, they were the ones who were hunting uh, Jewish people and anyone that was considered an enemy of the state. So all the crazy fucks that we hear about, all of them, the evil brainwashed people. They were that was your SS Mengele and all those fucking crazy Nazi. Mengele was a doctor. Uh, he worked in the death camps. I don't know if he was technically. He probably was an SS uh, officer, like Himmler. Himmler for sure. Whereas in like guys like uh, uh, Rommel, the Desert Fox, some of the other big name German generals weren't, and in fact they were kind of at odds. The the, the German military establishment kind of had to just sort of bear the brunt of these idiots. A lot of them were, were freaking dumb asshole pieces of shit. Oh my God. So it, it's almost kind of, and I don't want to stir up a fire here, but it's almost, it's reminding me not uh, obviously on the same scale, but it's reminding me about like how the rest of the Republican party has to kind of put up with the Trumpy kind of nonsense. Yeah. To a much lesser degree, of course, but yes, yeah. they had no choice at that point. Like they, 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 they had lost control. And um, so the SS was, um, was Hitler's main sort of weapon to control the fate of things. So those, um, those guys that you talked about, the desert Fox and all those people who weren't like that, yeah. when the war was over, were they, were they tried for war crimes? He was in charge of the D-Day beaches. 
And um, basically, Hitler gave him uh, the option of being executed or committing suicide, and he committed suicide. He didn't see the end of the war. A lot of those generals didn't see the end of the war. A lot of them were uh, tried for war crime. They shouldn't be sympathized with or exonerated because they could have done something, and they didn't. There were many right. times in their careers where they could have done something, and they didn't. Okay. So maybe they didn't have the same crazy sick ideas that the Nazis had. Maybe they weren't Nazis, but they allowed it to happen. And so just by, you know, their their willingness to work with them, they were complicit. Okay. Yeah. I get that. I get that. Oh, wow. You know, I, I wonder if there's a one good book that tells all this in a very nice, concise way. Uh, like one good book on World War II? Yeah, but about this kind of thing, about, so I don't know much about it. I, as I said, learning history in high school scared me away from history so badly because memorizing dates was all that they wanted us to do. We'll discuss that later. You know, but if you want do- a really fun read that I would recommend, it's a, it's a historic fiction, is Herman Wouk's War and Remembrance. It's, it's, it, he gets all the, the major strokes right, but also tells it in a very compelling story. It's, it's a, you know, well-known book and, and, uh, critically acclaimed book. Okay. Okay. Let's move on. I want to tell you a little bit about the Nazis from my research. Uh, As you said, and uh, as a lot of articles noted, and I didn't know this until now, that the Nazis in particular Himmler, Heinrich Himmler, had a deep interest in the occult. And it's rumored that they were trying to harness unholy powers to help them in the war effort. That's right. Hitler himself recorded paranormal encounters in his private journal. Mm -hmm. Witchcraft, in particular, was an area of uh, deep interest to a lot of the Nazis. And it's said that the building we're talking about, the Rathaus, was the site of research and human experimentation on Jewish prisoners that they would get from Bergen-Belsen. The SS were rumored to have been trying to summon dark forces on the facility's lower levels. And this is what they said happened. They said the, the bodies of prisoners were mutilated in order to have them be more easily possessed by demonic or occult forces. Well, you, even you're talking about the um, the goat head. Uh, yes. Goat on, like that's that has a very satanic overtone to it, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. There are also theories which state that the building itself was constructed as a monument to the occult right down to the materials used and the shapes represented in the building's architecture. I'm not going to get into that now, but online there are people who have gone through every little nook and cranny on that building and said, this is actually the symbol for, you know, this demon and that demon. And this is, yeah, I mean, I think that's taking it a bit far, but hey, I don't know if the Prussians were uh, intending that when they built it, but whatever. No, well, the Prussians wouldn't have been that way. I mean, they were a warlike people, but perhaps that was done after. Perhaps the Nazis did that. Oh, sneaky Nazis getting in there. Um, And many believe it was designed to be a very specific antenna or gateway for evil forces. And and I say that to a bit the Nazis, but it but perhaps the architect was a devil worshiper. I don't know. You never know, right? Mm. All right, we're getting close to the end here, but I want to tell you a little bit about some aftermath. An anonymous post appeared on the internet in 2009. So this, these later bits are, are quite recent. The author of that post claimed that his father had told him without a doubt that the SS had indeed been trying to raise the dead by allowing demonic or cult forces to use the bodies of the dead as vessels. 
And the reason for this was they would have a force that couldn't be killed. So these would be reanimated corpses. They're already dead. So they're just being basically puppeted by evil forces. He said that the experiments were in fact successful, that they managed to have the dead become animated again with these evil uh, creatures. But the reanimated corpses were impossible to control. They were just completely animalistic. So almost like zombies, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or a really bad kindergarten class. <laughs> it's not a tumor or a pentagram. Or people on um, um, Black Friday sales. You ever watch those videos? I can't get enough of watching those. I love watching people fight over TVs at Best Buy. And they go insane. They're on the ground and they're like, I saw one woman, her top came off and her tits were out, but she was not letting go of that TV. I've never lined up for those things. Me neither. I just don't care. I would, I'll, I'll spend the extra 200 bucks and not deal with that shit. <laughs> Me too. Um, okay. Uh, and according to this guy's father, the experiments were discontinued because of that. They just couldn't control the creatures that they created. So maybe that's when they sealed it up. Maybe. In 2012, excerpts from the diary of a German doctor named Heinrich Haas come forward. And this doctor had worked on the lowest level of the rat house, level number five. It's like a video game. The deeper you go, the worse it is. Dr. Haas stated that the SS were indeed, without a doubt, using occult forces to raise the dead, the purpose of which was to ultimately create an unstoppable army of tireless corpses to fight for Germany. So we have two accounts that state that they were there and this is what was going on. The building was abandoned by British and German forces in 2012. So it was occupied by a military, uh, a military folk right up until 2012. It was at that point repurposed to house local government officials, which, which was its original intent. And they're there to this day. Parts of it, because the government is, doesn't have to be that big for a 40,000 uh, person community. Well, I think it's 70 now. Um, parts of it are now a hotel and a very popular hotel. Very good ratings. I looked online. But to this day, guests and workers alike both report strange sights and sounds at that location. And there you go, Dan. That is the story of- Hold on. Wait a minute. Did they ever open up the basement again? It's never been opened. I saw pictures of it. It's still sealed. Oh, they got to go down. Apparently, and as in terms of an engineering feat, it's crazy. I, I don't understand how even from a, a, a structural safety thing, how you can allow five of your underground floors be flooded and not have any access to those. Like, wouldn't they want to? to well, have, have you heard of Venice? Yeah, that's true. But still, I like. They're worried that if they do anything like that and try to pump out the water, the building will collapse. Oh, true. Okay. What about sending, I'm, I'm not kidding. What about sending divers in again? Or robots. Yeah, send in a submersible. Uh, apparently nobody's come forward to do it. God, well, maybe, maybe some of our listeners in Germany, which we do have some, uh, or Finland, which is not that far, or the band of uh, Irish and uh, uh, English, some Scottish. I don't know if we have any Welsh listeners. Or Elon Musk. Okay, Elon, we pretty sure you're listening to this show. If you can build one of your uh, robot things to go down there, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, just write a check. This could make up for the opening of Al Capone's uh, vault. Do you remember that? What? 
late 80s, early 1990s, it was a big, huge TV event with Geraldo Rivera as the host. And they had Mm -hmm. located what they believed to be Al Capone's vault. And on live television, they were going to open it up. So it was like the original Oak Island, like the, the, that TV show that I've lambasted. That would both hate Geraldo and all his douchiness, you know, really sold this thing up. And it was like the, the tension was mounting and worse. And they open it and it's a, it was a real vault. They open it, nothing inside, nothing inside. Did they not do a similar event for um, something that was recovered from the Titanic? Remember? Oh, you're right. Pulled up a safe from the tight something from the Titanic, a shoe or something, and opened it, and it was like, oh, like there's a spoon in there. I think there was nothing. Which makes sense because if it had been, let's say, money, then it probably would have dissolved by that point. There's a there's a company trying to develop a submersible to take you down that deep to go and look at it. Well, you and I've talked about. I'm not as afraid of submarines as you are, but I don't want to go that deep. I find that I have always found the Titanic a little terrifying. Well, it's pitch black down there again. Like the way the pictures look that they publish now, they're all green. It's beautiful. That's because the lights from the submersibles are lighting that shit up. That it's pitch black. And there's very little, like there's no plankton and shit down there because it's the pressure of the water is so heavy. And speaking of the Titanic, we may have something uh, maybe doing a special show on the Titanic. We're working on it. We're working on it. And th- we're not going to tell you when, good listener, because we don't want to be stuck with a date, but we're working on something special for that show. And uh, Riley, could you just take your headphones off? Great. Uh, we're going to send Riley in an old submarine, one of those balls, a diving bell, down to the Titanic. It'll be hilarious. Can you imagine going down to one of those? I can't even imagine. What, well, who's that guy? Um, it's not Oliver Stone. What's the director who did Titanic? What's his name? Um, he was married to Linda Hamilton. Cameron. James Cameron. James Cameron. Did you ever see the submersible that he went down in with the rest of them to look yes. at the Titanic? Like, and it took like eight hours just to get down? Mm-hmm. Why? Oh, my God. But I have to say... It was great that he went down because it changed everybody's attitude about the Titanic. Because before that, they didn't know that it had broken in half and gone in two different directions. So that changed the whole mythology around it, right? Yeah, I think, it, well, I, he's he's an interesting Canadian. Is he Canadian? He sure is. Wow. He's from Northern Ontario, Capascasing, uh, I believe. Isn't he supposed to be a bit of a dick? I don't know. I think he is. I well, think. A lot of those big directors probably are. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I think he's an artist and he, he probably, you know, he got a lot of art talent and not maybe a lot of people person talent. I know that in, in the making of that movie, he pushed the, like Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet talk about how um, they were pushed really hard and actually felt afraid for their lives in, in the filming of that, uh, of the Titanic. Whenever I hear actors talking about how hard they had to work, I don't give a fuck. Honestly, like, what was that? Was I reading? It was something about recently from Bruce Willis, and it was some film, and he'd been paid like four million dollars to be in the film. So shut up. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't talking about it being dangerous. He was just talking about how hard he had to work. Well, yeah, right. I yeah, that's bullshit. Now that movie, they were like literally in freezing water. I know, but it was filmed in Mexico, right? Was it that cold? Uh, apparently, the water was. You know when they're they're in I think it's their scenes in the ship they, I, I think they were on a sound stage uh, for oh. those it was cold apparently it, it was cold water that was being pumped in there and there were actual big things moving around that you could get 
hurt on. So you could drown. I, I think drowning was a real possibility. And I know the external bits were all shot in Mexico because they left the boat. They left the boat there and everybody was mad about it. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. They left it. Well, and then people went out and grabbed pieces of it to keep right for souvenirs and to sell. I don't know if you know this, but Big Trouble in Little China was shot in. Oh, shoot. You made a promise and you broke uh, it. Well, just edit that out. No, I'm keeping it in so everyone knows what kind of person you really are. <laughs> All right, Dan, um, did you like that one? I love Now I need to go and read more about this because I, I do, I, I am a World War II buff. I'm not a expert when it comes to their dabbling with the occult. So I need to read about this thing and I need to read about that. Like that's insane. It's great. I wasn't as, as super hooked on it until I got to the point where the diver came back up and said, this is what I saw. And then I was like, holy fuck. Because I was kind of already getting a bit excited when the, the allied troops come through and find out that it's all been sealed by cement. Because nobody does that without having a damn good reason, right? If I'm not mistaken, Crowley, Alistair Crowley had a connection to Hitler too. Oh, he was everywhere, that man. He was a piece of garbage, though, too. Well, he became, like, kind of a darling of society in that, like, he, he was at Hollywood parties and shit, and there, there was a time when he was kind of getting around a bit, a good old Alistair, the author of the Satanic Bible. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to talk about him. He's a douche. I am a skeptic. I don't typically believe in these things. I've said this countless times on this show, but that's creepy, and some of the stuff we've talked about, like, the, the House of 200 Demons and King Paimon stuff. Yeah. Like, there are people who really believe this stuff. Oh, I know. And even if it's not true, like, let's say they didn't actually animate corpses with demon spirits. The fact that they were trying. The fact that they were trying, which I, I fully believe that they were crazy and insane and sick enough to do that. I mean, we know, we know that they did horrible experiments on people. We know that from the camps as well. The um, the worst image for me is just coming across a figure strapped to a chair with a goat head. Whether or not that's true, just the image of it, just like that one just got me. I was like, oh my God, I'm getting a priest. And, and it's possible too, just saying that he, he started to see things if he was freaking out. Like if he was starting to experience anxiety and his movements might have made the body, if it's underwater, it could... His movements could make things move and oh, yeah. the black could have been shot. Like there's a lot of ex possible explanations for how that's absolutely, not. absolutely. But horribly weird and dark. I'm glad you liked it. It was a dark story. It's a dark winter's night story, but I had to share it because I think it kind of rocks. And I had never heard of this. Well, don't worry, folks, because next week I'm gonna brighten things up with a hilarious little story about an alien who lands in a family's house with his spaceship. And this little guy loves eating cats. And the father, Willie, boy, oh boy, has he had it up to here with him. You know, you've talked about Alf before. Oh. Yeah. We know you like Alf. I think we should go. It's, uh, it's, it's, I think it's, that's long enough for uh, this episode. You know who I want to mention before we go? I want to mention Pickles Bigglesworth. Yes. He was on our Facebook group and he comments from time to time. And I don't know why. I just really dig him. He's cool. First of all, a great name. And I'd like to think uh, their real name. And isn't he, he's in Alaska, isn't he? I believe he is in Alaska. So there's that. 
or I don't know the uh, how they identify. So they, he, she, whatever. Um, yeah. Um, hey, and you know, pickles. If there's any uh, stories from up north you want to share, do so. Yeah, because there must be great stuff up there. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Okay. So uh, thank you for joining us this week. We are so glad that you dropped by the weird. And uh, yeah, that's it for me, Dan. That's it for me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to it and uh, give us a good old rating. And the best thing you can do for us, let other people know. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Have a great uh, rest of your week. Good night. See you soon. Let's go down to the local bridge and I'll throw myself off and you could pretend to be the angel and rescue me from... And then we'll go to the shack next to the bridge. And then I'll tell you, I don't... I wish I was never born. Ottawa, and it would be a terrible town run by uh, cannabis uh, czars, and everything will be bad, and then I'll realize my spinster uh, wife, who never was, that I I made a mistake, and I wanted to go back, and then I'll come in, we'll come back into the house.